Hello there, podcast fans. We're here with your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. I'm her son, Andrew Bray, and I wanted to introduce you. Hello there, Mom. Hello, Andrew. I like that intro. That was cool. (laughs) You got to at least say who you are this time. That's good. Yeah. 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 Well, it's always a good reminder that you have this more than full-time job that you've created for yourself, which is not only being an inspirer, but having these conversations. But of course, naturally, you've also, for such a long time in your life, had the full-time job of being a parent. Yeah, but that's so never going to end. Way do you see? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. She's she's a, a grandmother times two, everybody. Uh, <laughs> so heads up, you're you're listening to a fellow who's still learning how to catch up on sleep. Right <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Ah, and he's so cute. (laughs) Oh, so tell us a little bit about this upcoming conversation we get to listen to. Well, I had the best conversation ever with John Miller. I've known John for a long time on Twitter, and we've conspired together, making questions and doing things like that. But it was so nice to really hear his story. His story is amazing. He shared so much about all the different places he's lived and the the places he's taught and Mm -hmm. his children and his life. And we talked a little longer than I normally do, but I just wanted to get everything in. And I just hope people listen to the end. It's amazing. His story is so great. (laughs) So this sounds less like a conversation and more like a cathartic journey. Well, we talked about being on my virtual porch and it was, it was so easy to talk to John. He, he shared good, you know, amazing stories and some sad stories and some how he found, you know, just, well, he married his wonderful wife who's from Mexico. So he has a, a dual citizenship and lives in Mexico and travels in the United States. And he goes all over. He's been to Brazil. He's been to North Carolina. He's been to Oakland when I was working there, but I didn't know him then. And so there was all these things like, you know, when you're sitting with someone on your porch, it was just like, really like that. I just can't wait to people listen. Cool. Everybody, get on your porch, find a rocking chair, get a mint julep, and (laughs) sit back and listen to the conversation with Barbara Bray and John Miller. I'm pretty excited. I have someone I've been following on Twitter for some time, John Miller. John, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you very much, Barbara. I'm really, really happy to be here as well. Well, I kind of got to know you all through Twitter, but we've done some other things. So I'm going to boast about you a little bit because uh, you're pretty amazing. I learned your story and I went, oh my goodness. (laughs) Are you okay if I do that and share it with my audience? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So it's John Miller. John's the head of school at the Eaton School in Mexico City. And I got that right. Did I pronounce it right? You pronounced it exactly right. Oh, cool. So John's journey as an educator started in 1990 as a Teach for America Corps member in Los Angeles with detours to the San Francisco Bay Area, including Oakland when I was there. Did you know that? (laughs) It's pretty cool. And then you went. Pretty cool. 
It really is. It's, I went, you were right down the street and I was there. And yeah, that was cool. But we didn't know each other then. But now we do. And then you went to Rio de Janeiro. Okay, that's going to be one we're going to talk about. And then to South Carolina. And then you went all over. And then you ended up in your dream school in Mexico. Did I get that kind of right? I mean, I shortened it a little bit, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a long story. Each one of those stops along the way, but it's a great it's a good it's a good summary of what what has happened over the last thirty two years. Yeah. Wow, you look so young. Really, <laughs> <laughs> thirty two years. It's so amazing. Well, I met you on Twitter, like I said, and you did a you guest host it on the Rethinking Learning, you know, Twitter chat, and that was one of our, do you know that was one of our best participated that you you got more responses and participation than anyone we had. Wow. I didn't know that. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, it was a well, great I, conversation. I remember we worked really hard on those questions and, uh, <laughs> and I guess it paid off. Yeah. Got people yeah thinking. You, were, you were really great. In fact, I know, I know that you know how to reflect on experiences that we all go through. You're really good at providing a way to frame those experiences that everyone can understand. I think that's why it was so cool. Questions were good, the way you responded to people. So I'm really excited about this conversation because there's so much I learned about you. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love I love working alongside educators, both in the physical space and in the virtual space. Twitter has become a real... Um, asset for me as a, a place to synthesize my own ideas, react in a safe environment, positive environment. I know Twitter doesn't always <laughs> provide that, but in the education space, it certainly does, or it has certainly for me. You know, people question you, they'll ask you, you know, they'll, they'll challenge you, but in always in a really respectful way. Um, the confrontations that we, you know, that, that make up the li our lives in schools, you know, it's nice to take a little bit of a break from that from time to time in a in the virtual space. So Twitter has mm -hmm. been a really, really a, quite a godsend for me. I know. And a lot of people are going, you're still on Twitter? <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I've met so many wonderful people. And like you said, it's like it's safer because it's all of our friends and part of, we call it a personal learning or professional learning network, personal and professional, really, because everyone's become personal friends like you. It's been yeah. wonderful. So I always ask everyone to start out with their why. What is your why? Yeah, well, I, I always say that the reason I got into this field and the reason that I continue being excited by this field is that I see in every single person that we come into contact with, there's their current performance, it's who they are, and then there's their potential. And so it's less for me about a, an award or a, a recognition or even a, you know, a scholarship. It's less about that. And it's more about everybody sort of moving ahead and moving forward in their own personal journey. And I think that educators have that opportunity to, to really meet children and, and even adults, right? As an administrator, I work as much with adults as I do with children, not more. And it's about meeting them where they are um, and recognizing that if somebody could just sort of push them a little bit in one direction. And, and if they felt, if they feel heard, then it's really more likely that they're we're going to be able to reduce that gap between their current performance and their future potential. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I think that educators don't even realize the impact they have on every child, because I know I had one child come up to me and 
it was years later to tell me that I made a difference in their life. And I had mm-hmm. no idea I did. Yeah. And isn't that wonderful if we do that? And even if they don't tell us, it's just so powerful what we say, yeah. what we do, and it's building those relationships. Yeah. And it's easy to, it's easy to, to, to continue, you know, to, to move too quickly. And if you move too quickly throughout your day, you'll miss some of those opportunities to be there and that be that person that the child trusts and that the young person is able to really, you know, um, connect with. Um, I, in fact, it's funny you said literally on Friday, um, just a couple of days before, a couple of days ago, um, we had our teacher's day celebration at the school that I run. And, um, I talked about, uh, a story that I had heard on an, on a podcast on Brene Brown's podcast, actually. Mm, yeah. Um, she interviewed, uh, Susan David, who's a psychologist and just, and wrote a book called emotional agility, I believe. And it's, and she told the story about knowing about this teacher that helped her through a moment of a real difficult time in her adolescence. And just by giving her a journal, you know, just giving her time and space to write. And everyone asked her, how are you? How are you? And she kept saying, fine, 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 because that's what we do. You know, and it's only when we trust somebody, right? And that we can feel vulnerable and we can open them ourselves up to them. And that's what the story, and I, t- I shared that story with my school. Uh, and I, you know, and it's like, you'll never know, right? You, you may never know. Um, you may never have that student come back to you. Some of us, I've had all similar stories where kids have come back to me and um, told me about things that, either things that I remember, I sort of knew that they, mm-hmm. I remember that they had happened, but I didn't necessarily know the impact that I'd had on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it is a really wonderful part of our, uh, of our, of our, of our profession. Um, and the memories, it's, it's interesting to think about what things we do and don't do, mm-hmm. you know, can impact the students today and tomorrow. Oh, I love that. And same, I work with adults also and teachers and administrators, and I just want to be there as an advocate. And so I've had people tell me, you know what you did? You did such and such, and it really made a difference. And I'm telling you, I didn't even know I did. It, it's, it's so we have to be maybe more aware of the person we're talking to, like I'm talking to you right now. Um, and I just, it just means a lot if we can be a positive force in the world and um, help someone, like you said, reach their fullest potential. It doesn't matter what age you are. Right. We're always growing and changing. So I want to learn about what it was like for you growing up because you didn't grow up in Mexico. Can you tell no. a little bit about your background there? Yeah. So I grew up in a uh, blue collar town called Rahway in the state of New Jersey. Uh, we lived there because it was a quick commute for my dad into the into New York City. Um, lived in the same house for 18 years. Oh, and I like to say that was the that was the th- one third of my life in the same house, and then the the remain the you know the the last two thirds or up until today, I've been in probably eighteen pla- eighteen different places you know <laughs> houses. Uh, so I tend I tend to move around a lot, uh, you know. But it was a really uh, it was a good uh, opportunity to live in a place like that and meet people of different you know. Sort of, I was sort of one. I, had a, I went to private school for middle and high school, even though I lived in a you know a town that didn't send a lot of kids to private schools. Um, my parents decided that that was the right the right thing for my brother and me, and we uh, we definitely benefited from that. In fact, uh, the middle and high school that I went to was a K twelve school. I started in grade seven, and I went back twenty years after I graduated 
uh, as, as their middle school principal. Oh, um, wow. And so that was, uh, that was interesting. I had some of my old teachers now working for me. So I was, <laughs> I always caution teachers and administrators. You never know. Uh, some of one of your students may end up being your boss someday. Uh, so you have to, you know, be careful. Uh, but it was a wonderful thing. It was a, it's a great school and my kids got to go there. Uh, it's one of the things that really, um, really is special about, you know, being a father and an educator, right. Is having your, the opportunity to be, be close to your kids. And that's been a crawl along the way. That's been a, a real source of um, joy for me. Oh, that's wonderful. So you actually went to school. You were, were you, do you feel like you were a good student or you? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> I don't think I was, I was definitely not the top student, right. Mm. Um, I definitely had, I was a really well-rounded uh, student. So there, I was involved with everything, you know, anything and everything. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, academics were always just a part of the equation. Um, I don't think I had the discipline. I don't think I had the, the attention, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, I was a really, really early reader. So, um, trying to keep up with my brother who was older than me, I think it led me to become an early reader. And I just was, it came naturally and easy to me. I don't, I, so I went, I was already, when I was in kindergarten, I was reading at a fourth, fifth grade reading level. Oh wow! Um, I kind of peaked early, I think is the, is the, is the expression, but I was always really interested in learning and in reading. Um, school sometimes met that need in a classroom, but I think school in general uh, filled me because it offered me all of these other opportunities to play mm-hmm. music, to play sports, to do those things. And I think for me, when I hear of schools that are reducing their um, the, the work that they do only to what happens in a more narrow mm-hmm. academic sense, I think of how many kids would, I don't think that would have worked for me. I think I would have rebelled against that. Um, and I already, I did rebel a, a, a little bit, right? I mean, <clears throat> but because there was opportunities uh, for me to, you know, sort of explore different areas, I think it was easier for me to find success in school. Well, you told me that not only you're in school, but you were working a lot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so you were yeah. busy a lot. Yeah. I, you know, my parents were, uh, we were, I think we were an average, you know, of the, of the, in the socioeconomic group that sends your kids to a private school. I think we were average. We weren't, mm. you know, the, 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 the people with the least amount of money, nor were we the people near, nor were we even close to the people with the most amount of money. Um, but my parents are really clear that, and I think maybe they knew that that by working, I would stay grounded, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least they had a real sense that they were going to invest in education. That mm-hmm. was their investment. They weren't going to invest in me having fancy clothes or going to New York with my friends or, you know, uh, that wasn't part of their plan. My, so for me, and for me, it was important to have those relationships and to have those opportunities and, you know, to, to fit in, right? And I think in some cases, I think that, that that was right. I mean, I think that my gut was correct. And the only, only way to do that was to have jobs. And so I, you know, I did, a, I did a, everything you could imagine um, <laughs> that was legal uh, in order to make, in order to Thank make you. money. Thank you. I'm glad you did that. And again, I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I had to ever make money to eat or, you know, I mean, it wasn't like my parents wouldn't buy me clothes. They would, but I wanted something, if I wanted something that everyone had, I had to, you know, I had to work for it. Um, you know, I remember, you know, friends of mine who got friends of mine who got brand new cars when they graduated for, or when they, excuse me, when they got their driver's license. And for me, that was, a, you know, I was going to get a handy, hand-me-down car that had, mm-hmm. you know, that was on its last legs. Uh, in fact, I remember, yeah, I remember my car breaking down, uh, <laughs> on my way to prom 
in high school. <laughs> I still remember that. And it was, it was a nightmare. Uh, Did you it, make it, it was, to the prom? Uh, yeah, so, What's that? Did you make it to the prom? We made it. We oh. made it. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't pretty, but we made it. Uh, and uh, but yeah, so that was, so I think. But look, I mean, the reality is, and in fact, when I went to college, similarly, I didn't have to take out student loans. You know, my father had really saved. I mean, we lived on my mother's teacher's salary. My mother was a school teacher. My father worked in New York and had a good salary. Uh, but he was uh, he lived his life. Um, always thinking, always preparing and planning for the future. Mm. And he wanted to have the freedom to be able to retire when he wanted to retire and not feel like he had to work in order to, you know, in order to have a, in order to continue to support himself and my mom. Right. And uh, so he, you know, put away a lot of his money. He put it away, put it away, put it away. So we lived on a, you know, rather, rather awesome. So my dad, my dad would literally take his, his check, pay for tuition and then everything else would go into, into investments or into a uh, mm. pension, his pension. And my mom's salary was what we used for food and clothing and gas and, and travel. And so we didn't have, you know, brand new cars. We didn't have, you know, we didn't take European vacations. We didn't do any of that. Uh, you know, we, we lived a rather, rather austere life and both my brother and I worked, you know, as much as we needed to in order to try to catch up and keep up a little bit. Right. I mean, we, again, we weren't trying to impress anybody. We were just trying to, you know, have a little bit of a uh, little few, you know, some opportunities to do the things that my friends were doing. You know, they would go to, they would go to call, they would go to Colorado, you know, go skiing at mm-hmm. Vail. You know, I went to, I went to work at a hot dog truck on spring break, you know, winter breaks like that. You know, I mean, sometimes and it was, it's not a sad story. Right. I mean, I actually liked it. I liked working. I liked seeing different people. I liked um, being able to get outside of a, that prep school environment. I think, when I, so when I went to college, I similarly had to find opportunities on campus to meet students who, you know, maybe I wasn't exactly like them in terms of, you know, they, I mean, they, you know, they had student loans. I didn't have student loans, but my, my mindset, I think was similar to theirs. I don't think we were taking it for granted and some other students who maybe never had to work, maybe mm-hmm. they would take it for granted. They were taking it more for granted. I don't know that as a fact. That's just sort of the impression yeah. I got. Well, you went to Tufts. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. Were you always going to be a teacher or did you know what you were going to do or? No. So I went to Tufts because they had a really, uh, they were one of the few schools at the time uh, who had an undergraduate degree in international relations. And mm. I was very, always interested in travel. I was always interested in learning languages. Um, and so it's not so strange that I'm now living outside of the United States and have traveled to other countries and lived in other countries. Um, even though that wasn't sort of what my parents did and that's not what, that wasn't common or, or typical in my family. Um, but I went to Tufts to be interact to, and I wanted, I thought about going into the diplomatic course. So again, something international. Um, but I always say that uh, the more I learned about how the U S government operated, the less I wanted to work for them. Um, <laughs> yes. I decided that I needed to be on the outside. And, and it was funny, my dad, when I ended up becoming a teacher, my dad said, I don't understand why, you know, how you went from interested in political science and, and development to education. I said, well, you know, I think what ended up happening was I realized that, you know, when you work in government, when you work in, um, in services, social services of any kind, you're, you're supporting people who have a problem, who have a, a, a need. And that's beautiful work. But if you work in education, you're actually trying to prevent people from having those needs, right? I mean, they're still yeah. going to have needs, but that if you think about education as an opportunity to prevent people from needing uh, certain services when they get older, I guess that's always how, that's how I saw it 
when I started my career, and I think I still see it to that that same way to an extent. I think education can make give you an opportunity to be more self sufficient, right? To not rec- not need government service as much as you might otherwise. And obviously, there are exceptions to that. There are people who have who are fully you know have all of the education in the world and still need a hand. But in, I think it, it lessens the likelihood that you're going to be dependent on on social services or on government assistance. That's really cool. I you know I. That's kind of why I went into it. Education is um, kind of to prepare people. So when you've said it before for your why, help them reach their full potential. A lot of people don't even know what that is. Right. So you're opening doors for them and you're pointing them to, you know, different um, opportunities they never probably even thought they could take a hold of. And yeah. I just love that you did that. I mean, it's a big step to go from international studies, diplomatic corps to education but yeah. you did it and yeah well the thing is i mean i was literally i remember i remember it like it was yesterday um and i was walking down you know mm-hmm. across campus and i saw a science to teach for america and i had no idea what that was mm-hmm. it was an information session uh and the, the program didn't exist i mean it, they were they were building it um i graduated in 1990 wendy cop who founded teach for mm-hmm. america grounded uh, graduated in 1989 well so i didn't she, know that yeah, oh, wow. one year before I graduated. So wow. she got her friends together from colleges around the country, people she yeah. knew, and, uh, and 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 sound, and started the program. So I was one of the first, literally the first, uh, we call Charter Corps, um, who went to the first five uh, locations that Teach America worked, including L.A. County. And I was in Linwood, California, which was in Southeast, mm-hmm. which is in Southeast Los Angeles. And I, I, I was one of the, yeah, one of the first 500 teachers to to work in that program. And I, you know, people asked me about that first year and it was, uh, it was really interesting because we, you know, it, we, we didn't expect a lot from Teach for America, right? I literally, I mean, I think literally the only thing I expected was for them to get me to the schoolhouse door, you know, and then I had to do everything from them. And that's not entirely true. They tried, I mean, there was, you know, that the crash course that they give you and, and it was a community and that was really, really nice. Um, and, you know, we all felt like we were doing something special, you know, we all mm-hmm. felt like we had a purpose um, which I think all educators feel, but I think sometimes you walk into a school as a new teacher, despite how many, how much training you have, and you you feel a little bit alone, depending on how you know what your school, how supportive your the people are, your colleagues are, and your administration is. And we kind of had a second, you know, uh, support network, which was nice. Um, so I actually was in the first year. I was asked to be on a national on the Teach for America's national advisory board because they realized that it was difficult for them to know what was actually happening in different districts around the, uh, around the country. And so they asked us, um, so I was nominated, um, by the regional director to be one of these sort of spokespeople. So they, we traveled to New York a couple of times a year and just kind of talked about what was working. And maybe they, you know, they used us as kind of like a sounding board to try to figure out what might, how they might support teachers better. Um, and now I see what teach for America has, does for their teachers and how they try to, you know, they try to, increase the chances that they're going to fulfill that two-year commitment and then, you know, inc- invite them up to stay along, to stay, you know, and for me, I was actually interviewed by um, USA Today. The first year I was teaching, I was three months, three months in really, and the newspaper t- at USA Today and they interviewed me. And I said, at the time, you know, they asked me the question that everybody was asking, right? Well, are these people actually going to stay in education? Right. Uh, and, uh, they asked me that question. I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to stay at the school. I don't know if I'm gonna stay here in Los Angeles. I said, but I, I, but I know without a doubt that, that the work that we do and that the work that it's done in schools is the most important work that there is. That's my opinion. 
that it's the most important work. So, you know, to be able to do that work and now looking back on it 32 years later, you know, be able to have done, to have done that work for my entire career, um, you know, is very rewarding. Well, I did work in Oakland with um, Teach for America teachers and they were all wonderful, but the, many of them left after two years and going to law school or something else. But, but they did make a difference. They, yeah, they, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, it depends, right? I, I, I do say uh, that I don't think programs like this should exist because I think we should have lines of people waiting, you know, to try to get it who want to go, want to go teach in our class, in the classrooms and particularly in classrooms where kids don't have, um, you know, the same level of support. They don't have the, you know, they're not coming from families that necessarily have had formal education in this country in the, in the United States. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, you know, I think the programs like this exist because there's a need, not because it should be, it shouldn't yeah. be, you know? Um, but I do think that people sometimes misunderstand that the purpose of the, of Teach for America isn't to solve the teaching crisis. And it's not even necessarily to find people who want to be teachers for the rest of their lives. It's to create a, a new generation of people, leaders, who are going to be leaders in law and medicine and business. Mm-hmm. Um, and these folks are going to take with them the experiences they had in the classroom and they had in classrooms like the ones that Teach for America places teachers in. So they're going to see what it's like to work in inner cities and rural areas of the country that face chronic teacher shortages. So when they're voting, you know, I know I have, I have Teach for America uh, uh, friends that are in every imaginable line of work. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to them, you know, there's, there's always that they never forget, you know, the experiences you have in the classroom in the beginning of your career, no matter what, what that career is, you know, you always have those really, really meaningful life, life changing experiences. Mm -hmm. So when they're sitting in a boardroom, when they're sitting around at, you know, in, in, in government, when they're sitting around, sitting around tables, they're going to be at tables, right. Um, that maybe other teachers aren't going to be at. And Mm -hmm. when they're at those tables and questions about funding for schools or about, you know, violence in schools, um, about the pandemic, you know, there, there are going to be discussions and conversations that these people are going to now have, be able to draw from their own personal experience. And they're going to be able to, uh, say really powerful things. And it's not based on something they've, they've read. It's based on something that they've lived. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that that's, that's really the purpose. Um, and I think it, it, it fulfills a, a a need. I think it's good. No, I exists. I'm glad you said that because, you know, there, <clears throat> a lot of people don't really understand why there's a shortage. And they say, oh, well, Teach for America can fill that. But they don't understand the whole process of we're building on our experiences. Right. And if you're giving back as a teacher in the beginning, like you said, it's going to stay with you. You're going to understand what it's like for a teacher in yep. those classrooms. And especially I worked in Oakland and Oakland Unified in the Bay mm-hmm. Area. And you worked there one year, you said. Yeah. So I, I was in, so after I did the first two years, uh, in Linwood, um, I was invited to work as a West coast regional recruiter. So I was recruiting teachers for teach for America. Mm. I was based in Oakland, but my region, but I, I recruited teachers up and down the West coast from San Diego to Seattle. And mm. that was, a, they, and they wanted people like me who had done the program. They didn't, they didn't, in fact, I, I, to be really honest and transparent, I actually left the classroom because I hadn't fulfilled, I hadn't finished my credential. I'd worked towards it. Um, and then the district decided to, um, not only to, it did, they didn't renew our contracts. Yeah, uh, they offered us long-term subcontracts with no benefits. 
And I thought that was a bit uh, unfair. It wasn't something that they had said, well, if you don't finish your credential, you, and maybe I should have known that, that I would, that the only way I would really have job security was if I had that, but I didn't really feel that way. In fact, I had been hired as a district translator. I worked with a lot of different people at the district and nobody had really said that that was going to, that that was a risk, but it happened. And all of a sudden, you know, literally a week before I was supposed to go back in the classroom for my third year, because I had every intention. I loved working where, you know, I didn't, you know, I loved working in, 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 in schools. And I always, and I knew, as I said, I knew I was going to continue to work in schools in one way, shape or form. Anyway, so I went to the Teach for America graduation which was up in Northridge, California, uh, for the, for the entire country. Everyone came out there for what they call graduation. And, um, any, for all of those, all of us that had finished our two year commitment and which was at that point, I, I don't remember, I don't know the percentage, but it was a significant number of us. Um, I know that number has gone up over the years as again, as they've created, you know, better recruitment tools and better, uh, support for teachers. Um, and a, and a guy came up to me and he says, I'm building a team of recruiters and I think you'd be mm-hmm. really good. Would you, would you be interested in doing that? And so the job really was two parts, right? It was recruitment. So we would go on to, on to college campuses up and down the coast, West coast, talk to uh, universities, to groups of students, try to encourage people to apply. And then we'd go back in the winter spring to interview. And so we would interview 60 teachers a month, uh, a week. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a partner, so we would be able to share notes and it was a really, it was a really good experience. And so I did that for about four months. And then I worked as a regional director in the Bay Area, which again was based in Oakland. And then I decided I really, it wasn't working on the nonprofit, working on the administrative side of the nonprofit wasn't, it was, I wasn't close enough to the classroom. So I went back into Oakland Unified for a year. So I worked in East Oakland at Cox Elementary. And then I found a job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was part of a grant that I helped write. And so I would, ah. it was all a technology grant at the time. Oh, interesting. So I know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So I was there for a year. And again, I liked yeah. the school. It was a good school yeah. for me. But I found a friend of mine, Teach for America friend, his partner was the was a teacher at a Spanish language immersion school in, San, in the Mission District of San Francisco at that mm. time called Buena Vista. Now it's different location. I think it's called Buena Vista Horace Mann. It's a K-8 school. I know what um, that one is. Yeah. 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 And I did, I taught early element, early, early elementary there. Um, and it was a school where I got to, you know, I think it was a, the, the, the advantage was that I was in it with a really, it was the first time I think I was with a really a smaller school where people were all sort of, um, had a common vision for what education would be. And everyone was on a first name basis, including the principal, my key to my classroom opened up all of the, uh, the doors in the, in the, in the, uh, in the school. So you were, mm-hmm. you were encouraged to go in and, and, you know, share your resources. And if you needed something, you took it, you just left a note on the desk. I mean, it was a very friendly, yeah. uh, familiar kind of environment. And, and uh, so it was a really, uh, it was a really special thing. And so that was, I think the only reason I left Oakland, I, I, I also enjoyed working in Oakland. You've been a lot of places because you were then yeah. as a Spanish immersion teacher, you, that means that you were completely, um, Spanish speaker at that time, yeah. right? When did you yeah. meet, when did you meet your wife? So in college, I, you know, at, at Tufts, um, there's a lot of folks that study international relations. It's a very popular major mm-hmm. and Tufts at the time and still is a school that really prioritized travel and foreign language. And so a third of the junior class, so that's almost 500 people tip mm-hmm. every year, at least at the time would go abroad for a semester or a year and Tufts had their own programs in Europe. I think they had a program in Israel. Um, but I was really interested in Latin America. I was really interested in development issues around, around, uh, developing countries. And so 
I initially looked at Columbia and I always joke that, you know, my whole life story would have been very different if mm-hmm. I'd actually gone to Colombia, um, mm-hmm. the country Colombia. And yeah. at that time, that was the 80s. And there was the, what they called La Violencia. That was the a really, really difficult time in Colombia yeah. uh, with uh, violence. Um, and so my father, this is before the internet, <clears throat> my father would clip out articles about violent from the New York Times about Colombian violence. <laughs> and, he would, and he would send them to me and he would highlight you know, people who weren't involved in any, they had no reason to be victims of the violence. They were just minding their own business. And, and so he says, yeah, you're not doing it. He says, I'm not supporting your decision to go to Colombia. So I went wow. back to the study abroad office and I found this program in Mexico city. And so when I was there, uh, that's when I met my wife, uh, the woman who's now my wife at a, in a class, uh, at the national university of Mexico. It's, uh, mm. the it's the oldest and largest university in the Western Hemisphere. So it dates back to the 16th century. What? And has currently over 300,000 students um, at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. It's a, it's an incredible place. Uh, and so I always say that I found the best woman out of the entire 300,000. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to actually celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary oh, next month. So, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And you yeah. have two children, right? I have two boys. Yeah. Um, they're uh, grown, obviously. So given the fact that I've been around a while. Uh, so my <laughs> older son uh, graduated from UNC Chapel Hill uh, about set, uh, five, six years ago, five years ago. And he works at EY in New York uh, doing data analytics. Um, and my younger son is uh, a PhD uh, student at MIT. And oh, he wow. studies uh, nuclear fusion. So I can, Oh, is that all? That's it. Plas- <laughs> oh my God. It's, well, it's technically, it's, it's plasma <laughs> physics. Oh in the God. Department of Nuclear Engineering. You got yeah. some brainiacs in your family. They're, they're really good kids. And both uh. of them, by the way, they uh, were recently uh, contestants um, on the game show Lingo uh, with RuPaul. They what? won. So it, they, they filmed it back in the summer and then they actually was aired in January of this year. So uh, they're, they, they're, uh, they're, they're good kids. They're, and they... <laughs> They really love, and it was really warm, heartwarming to me that my older son, when he got this opportunity through a, I mean, a friend who was doing scouting for them, he, you know, he immediately thought that he wanted his brother to be his his partner in the on the Aww. game show. And so the two of them were uh, were they did it, and it's a, it's quite a show. We should probably put the link in the show. Can notes we put that in? I think that can, would we, be fun. It's really fun because it was it it was quite exciting tv i mean i know i'm biased but it was a, it was a come behind i'll, I'll just going to say it was a come from behind victory uh at the last minute <laughs> and, uh, so we got a kick out of it. it was a really it was a great experience for them they had they had a lot of fun doing it uh and now we're uh, trying to plan they wanted they in the show they said you know rupaul asked them well if you win you know what will you do with the winnings and and uh, my older son says, you know, we're, I'm going to give back to the people that, that helped us get here and starting with my parents. And oh. I had friends texting me, you know, did you hear that? I'm like, hear it. I, I taped it. I said, I've got evidence. <laughs> so, yeah, we're planning a family vacation this summer. No, they uh, won. The four of us. They, they won. won. Oh, then we won. have to. See. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So they That's were they cool. won. And, and it was it was just a lot. They had a lot of fun with it. They really, really did. So they're, they're, they bring me a lot of joy. My wife, my family in general, right? My family brings me a lot of joy. Um, I don't think I could do this work uh, without having, having them and their support and love. Uh, it's a big, big part of who I am. It really means a lot because 
you're very passionate about what you do and coming home, you know, sometimes other people in the family might have their own passions and kind of like, you know, just brush it off. But if you're all there together and you really care about each other, you're going to watch that show. They're going to listen to what's going on with you. Same with your wife. And I just love it. Oh my gosh, that's new. You didn't tell me that. That is a- no, that's a new one. I, 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 <laughs> I, we couldn't cover everything in the in the pre in the pregame show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I do a little pregame show, and that was really fun. I just learned so much about you. You, I mean, when I look, you okay? This one, you then went to New York after you were at, you know, you did this in Oakland and San Francisco, and then you went to New York, or did I miss no. it? So there was a step in between. So okay. when I when we were living in Oakland and uh, my older son was born and we were far away from family. So my family was on the East Coast and my wife's family was in northern Mexico in a city called Durango. And we had always when we got when we got married, the intent was always for us to live on both sides of the border. You know, we didn't know how long huh. in each place, but it wasn't like, okay, let's, let's, you know, she was, you know, my wife wasn't like, well, I want to marry an American guy to go and live in the U S like that was never her, yeah. our plan, her plan. It was to live on both sides and get, and, and, and do, you know, and, and move back and forth as, as often as we could. Uh, so when we had our older, older son, Diego, we decided it was really important to be with family and we wanted to go. So we went to Northern Mexico and there was uh, an opening as a teacher for a teacher in uh, at the American School of Durango. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what American schools were. I didn't know that these things existed around the world. Uh, and I still I still run into educators all the time who, who don't quite understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this school was started in the 1950s by uh, a small group of families that were Mexican-American. They lived, they had, you know, they were, they were ranchers and they had land in, in Mexico. They had land in the United States. And when they wanted it, their families to be in, in Mexico, they wanted them to still have the advantages of a U.S. style education. Mm. So for years and years, there's been uh, there's been there are po- there's a possibility of getting a, a U.S. accreditation. So your school can be anywhere in the world, and you can get accredited uh, internationally. So that school and the school that I run now are both schools that are incorporated here in Mexico. Right? They're founded. They were founded as local schools, but they were always had the intention of providing international, an international style education. Um, so I worked as a, a classroom teacher in that school for a couple of years, small school. And then I ended up making a kind of a crazy leap from being classroom teacher to being the head of school, um, mm. without stopping at, you know, Dean of students or vice principal or principal. I just went right from the classroom teacher. I was 30 years old <laughs> and I was given a one year temporary contract, uh, to sort of see how it would go. And I ended up staying six years as the head of school. And again, the school's been around since 1954, and I have, I have the longest tenure in the history of the school as head of school. So, and we did some really great things that the, the, the while I was there. It was a, and I still go back there. Wow. You know, my family, my wife's family, still lives there, part some of them, and so we uh, we go back and visit. And I, you know, it's it's nice to go back to a place that was a big part of my life. For we were there eight years. I was there two years as a teacher and six years as a as the head of school before we went to New York. Wow. I was trying to figure out all the places you were, and I knew you told me that, but I didn't know where it was. So yeah, that was, so that was oh, the, wow. my introduction to international education. Yeah, and I want we ended up moving back to the to the United States. As I said earlier, about moving mm. from 
being a student at this prep school to going back to that prep school. Because mm-hmm. again, the idea was that my, you know, my, we wanted our kids to have both. They wanted, we wanted them to be bicultural. Our, our mission as a family for our kids was that we wanted them to be as comfortable sitting around the dining room table with my family in New York, in New Jersey and their family in Northern Mexico, anywhere. Right. So, and yeah. we, we succeeded, right. They are, they're both fully fluent. They speak, uh, you know, both languages and they understand both cultures even though they currently both live in the United States. Um, hmm. In fact, my when my younger was my oh gosh, I'm not I'm not remembering which one. I believe it was my younger son who wrote an essay for his college application, and the question was, and he had lived in the United States for 12 years. Um, he, you know, and he and the question was something like, you know, where's the place that you feel most at home, most comfortable? Hmm. And he wrote about his grandmother, his Mexican grandmother's dining room table. Because Aww. we would always sit around the dining room table and we would eat and we would laugh and we would joke. And I mean, and the meal was almost, the meal was important, but it was, it wasn't, we didn't just, you know, we didn't just, you didn't finish your meal and just get up and leave. You know, you already just, even the kids would just sit around and talk and joke and tell stories. And that was where he felt. And I was really, you know, really gave us both my wife and I a real warm feeling inside to realize that that had had that impact. And even though they had lived and they had, you know, they kind of grown up, if you will, in the United States, that they still felt that that deep, warm connection to the family in Mexico. And that's, oh, that was that's super beautiful. important to us. Yeah. Oh, I hope they have, you have pictures of that too. Cause that was, I bet you sitting around that table is so, I don't know, that's you how know? families are like that. And yeah, I'm, not, oh, I'm, I'm sure we have pictures. Actually, that's not true. Yeah. We definitely have pictures around that table. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely have to throw the, one of those in as well. That's also neat. I mean, I know the family traditions and um, we're just going through right now, looking at some, pictures and it's just bringing up such great memories and so yeah, i'm glad no you did that you have so much i'm not sure i'm going to be able to cover all of it <laughs> but i do want to talk about at one point at, there's so many points you you went to rio de janeiro and then you went to south carolina and then you went back to west hill institute it's another one in that mexico. was in mexico city as well yeah but the thing that you talked about with me is when you went to um, Brooklyn and yeah. you were there and something happened. Right. I, 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 this is something that people have been talking about, but they weren't there like this. And I think mm-hmm. it, it might resonate with some teachers, just what happened to you, because yeah. it was pretty big. Yeah. So we were, you know, I, it, we decided, well, my dad got uh, was sick and we decided we wanted to live back in the U.S. again. And so uh, we ended up, I ended up getting a job teaching at a charter school in, in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. And, you know, my, if you look at the, the path, not only did I move around a lot, but I also didn't sort of follow, a, you know, I didn't go from being teacher to being principal to being, you know, it was, it's not linear, right? Yeah. It's kind of all over the place. And, mm-hmm. and I tried to go to different schools where, where I thought I could learn something. Uh, where I thought I could offer something. And, uh, and so I was more than happy to go back into the classroom after having been out of the classroom. I was, I taught, I'd done, I'd always taught a couple of classes, you know, um, one or two classes, even as a, as a head of school. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be a full-time teacher in a, in a charter school where, um, you know, which is run very differently and it's, it's very different than, than some of the schools that I've worked at, which were, which cater to, you know, professional families, professional class families, families of all, who have a lot of money, who, you know, in many cases who have been very successful in their own education, 
going back to working in, a, in an immigrant community, a community of people, mm. you know, not only not exclusively immigrants, but a large number of immigrants who have come to the, you know, to come to the United States and are really looking to make, you know, give their children educational opportunities that they may not, maybe they didn't have. Um, but yeah, so we were, I was there six, six months and learned a, a tremendous amount. Um, it was run very, very well and, and um, very different types of education. And then the pandemic hit. And I remember the, the, it was very anxiety producing, you know, we're living in Brooklyn, you know, and start hearing, you know, if you hear ambulances in New York on a regular basis, any, you know, in any, any, any time, imagine the start of the pandemic and the epicenter of the pandemic and, you know, ambulances were just non, non, nonstop and people were very scared. Um, I actually got COVID very early. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Uh, and, okay. you know, I remember doing a telehealth you know, call with the doctor and the doc, and I said, well, you know, we suspected it was COVID, you know, and, uh, he said, um, I said, well, shouldn't we confirm it? He says, no, why? You know, there's nothing, he says, there's no reason for you to come into the hospital, you know, you know, and so he told, don't come just, you know, just rest. If you have trouble breathing, right. You know, there's respiratory issues, then obviously you need to take care of that, but otherwise just stay put. And it hit, it hit, it hit me pretty hard. My wife then got it right after me. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, we, the, but the school didn't close very quickly, you know, and uh, that was really difficult because it got to a point where it felt like um, my own health and the health of my family was being put at risk in order uh, and for me to stay in the classroom and do my job as a, as a teacher. Um, and it was a difficult, it was one of the most uh, difficult moments in my career. Yeah. To feel that sort of being pulled in both directions, right? You want to be there for your students. And at the same time, you can't be there for your students if you're putting your own life at risk. And at that time, it, it, nobody knew, right? What the chances are is that you, that you would survive COVID. Yeah. Um, and people died. And, and my students, I mean, over the next, mm. you know, we went and finally did go online. And it was really difficult to go online because for us, because kids didn't have computers. These are not kids that had laptops, computers lying around. Um, they didn't have hot, they didn't have necessarily hotspots. I mean, internet, internet, Wi-Fi connections at home. Um, the school didn't even have, I mean, we, you know, school had laptops, but they were old laptops. They weren't really set up for online learning. I think we were quite behind the curve when it came to the ability to adapt to teaching online. Um, so we were, you know, looking for hotspots. We got, you know, we were able to work out deals and try to get the laptops in the hands of the kids, you know, donations from different people to try to get kids laptops, but it never was good. Right. Because yeah. you'd have, you know, kids in small apartments in New York. Imagine there's two, three kids, somebody has to stay home, but that's not always the key. He's always possible. Right. Because these are frontline workers that, you know, were typically the parents at the school. So they would leave kids with grandparents and whatnot. And kids were not logging in and, you know, can you have three lot, you know, kids logged in? I mean, imagine the, the bandwidth you need. If you have three, if you have two brothers and sisters and everyone's trying to log in at the same time, where do you oh, do that? Where you, know, if you have a one bed, you have a one, two bedroom apartment, you know, in New York, how, how do you do that? So logistically it was really, really difficult. And it was very taxing on all of us, on the, the kids. And, you know, four of my students or four of the students in my school, you know, buried their parents. I mean, and so you had the grief and tragedy that came along with the disc, you know, the, the, um, the challenge and the, 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 you know, of, of trying to teach in that type of environment. So it was not, it was not easy, um, for anybody. And, uh, so yeah. And I, and it got to mm. the point where, you know, I would hear people talking about, well, we have to get kids back to school. We have to get them back into school. And I, I agree that, you know, you know, that learning online is not, 
you know, schools are designed to be the optimal learning environment. There's no doubt about it. More than a part, you know, someone's apartment. But you know, at the time when people are dying of uh, and COVID, and people are saying, "Well, we have to restart the economy," and the only way to restart the economy is to get kids back to school. But I mean, I, I still remember. I mean, if if I really try to put myself back there, you know, it was very scary to think we were going back, and we didn't know whether or not we were going to get sick, and whether or not the kids were going to get sick to be in in the school in this in the classroom. Um, so yeah, it was, and, and it was very just. It was disappointing to see how easy it was for some people to say, well, let's just send the teachers back to school, you know, yeah. as though we were expendable um, oh. in the name of sort of restarting the economy. And I think that that's not something, I, you know, it's easy to forget. No, I, I just when you told me that and I mean, I, you could see it on TV. They it, it just New York was the place where it was just the worst hit. It was hit. The, yep. And so so you ended up going to Mexico or? Yeah. yeah. So I, so after I lived in the North in Northern Mexico and that was the late, uh, early two thousands, late 1990s to early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came back before the pandemic uh, and I was at a small, uh, not a small, at a, at a, a proprietary school. So it's a private owned, privately owned school owned by a family here in Mexico. I worked there for two years. I was in New York for two years. And then I got the opportunity to come to back to, to the school that I am currently running, which is called Eaton School. Mm-hmm. And Eaton is also a, was also a family-owned school for about mm. 30 years. The mother started a school, the mother founded it, and then when she died, the daughter took over as the head of school. And then when she was ready to retire, she her children weren't interested necessarily in the family business. And so she uh, looked for someone who might buy the school. The school is very well regarded here in Mexico City. Uh, we have long waiting lists for kids in um, many grades to get into the school. We have currently about 1,600 students on three campuses. So it's a very complicated uh, you know, school. Um, it is, But it was purchased by a, a company uh, that's based in London called Nordanglia Education. Um, and they own schools all over the world. And they typically, they build some schools, um, but more often than not, they buy schools like Eaton, schools that are really, really well regarded in the local market. Um, and they offer different collaborations and a lot of training. And for teachers, they try to kind of scale up and try to take, you know, try to take a, the way the former owner um, said it, said it, I like, I really liked when I got arrived. She says, you know, we're, we're, I think with the, joining this group of schools, we're going to take a strong school and make it stronger, make it even stronger. And so <laughs> that's, that's always, cool. that's been my, yeah, that's been my kind of mission, right? Is to try to build over the last couple of years, um, a school that it run, runs incredibly well, that is super special place and make it even better. Uh, cause we can always, we can always make, you know, we can always make ourselves better, right? So it goes back to performance and potential. You know, so we have our, you know, school is performing incredibly well. We were named one of the um, uh, Cognia Schools of Distinction. So Cognia is one of the largest U.S. accrediting agencies in the world, if not the largest. Mm-hmm. And we were named one of the, we were one of maybe a uh, hundred schools around the world who were named as Schools of Distinction. Um, recently, we did a parent satisfaction survey and 70% of our families rated us um, when asked the question whether or not they would recommend their school, the school to someone else, you know, 70% gave us either a nine or a 10. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really powerful number, I think. And there's, and that's the evidence of just how good the school is um, and how happy people are. Those that work, those of us that have the honor, honor to work there and the students and families that are 
um, are, are a part of the community. I went to the website and I just, it's so deep. You can, it, all the things that you offer there, that it's real world, authentic mm-hmm. and very personal yeah. um, approaches and everything that I always look for. So darn, I want to go, I want to go there. You got to come and visit, Barbara. I to come uh, and visit. <laughs> we, you know, we get visitors all the time yeah. because, of the, because we have folks that come from our office, the America's office in Miami. We have people who mm-hmm. come from London. And it's, you know, it's funny because it seems like, you know, the reputation, uh, our reputation has gotten back to people. And so it's like everyone comes in and, and it feels like they they, they want to they be the first person to say, well, it was okay. <laughs> and nobody's uh-huh. been able to say that. They all they all come in and they're all very impressed. It's It really is a really, really great, great place. Yeah. Um, and our early years, uh, we're, you know, one of the founders of the school is a published author on the Reggio Emilia approach on project, uh, project oh, approach. Oh, I love Reggio. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know. And and that's the thing that I, I love. One of the things that I love about it is that when you work with the kids at all ages, they're very confident, you know, because they've been given voice from a very early age. The mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, behind Reggio, and I know you know this, Barbara, but for mm-hmm. those that may not, you know, it, it really is similar to Montessori, but it believe, you believe in these, what they call prov- provocations. And they also mm-hmm. talk about the hundred languages that children speak. So it's not yeah. that children know. It's not just about the language that they're able to produce, particularly when they're two, three, four years old, when they start with us. But when, but when you give the right environment and you provoke learning, you can, mm-hmm. the sky's the limit. And when you, then when the teacher's role moves from being, you know, sage on the stage, as they say, to being the person who facilitates the environments, and listens to the kids and then says, oh, well, if the kids are interested in that, then mm-hmm. we need to put this material in front of them and see what they do with it, see what their questions are, mm. you know? And then they, we bring in experts and experts can be parents, they can be grandparents, they can be other teachers. Um, and they, and the kids ask questions and they, they always have their clipboards and they draw pictures and they write and they take notes. And so they know mm. that their questions matter and that their voice matters. And so when they get to be middle and high school, our kids not surprisingly win debate contests and model United Nations simulations wherever they go. They're sort of uh, either revered or resented. I'm not sure. Maybe a little bit of both <laughs> because they just are really, really good at you know breaking down a, a, an argument and being able to really present uh, a persuasive you know, uh, a persuasive argument and, you know, and convince someone of their posi- of their whatever their their pers- their position is. So it's a really powerful beautiful. place. So you had, yeah. I mean, I went to the website and there, I even grabbed some information to put out, out there because I think people, I've loved Reggio. So Reggio, is it across K-12 or is it mostly? So, mostly early years. Yeah. Um, it still influences particularly what happens at the elementary school to some yeah. extent. And then we kind of bring in the project approach, which is, it's mm-hmm. not exactly project-based learning, but it's very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, Sylvia Chard was the was I oh, think I I believe, the creator yeah. of the project approach. And then mm-hmm. what, what happens is that then when you reach um, what we call middle school, which is seventh grade, um, then we kind of go more into a more formal curriculum around the IB, the International Baccalaureate. So okay. we do the middle years program, which is uh, through tenth grade. And then we do the diploma program, which is eleventh and twelfth grade. Uh, and that gives kids the opportunity to get university credits while they're still in high school. Oh, we got to do more. We're going to put lots of stuff up on the website for people and have you on more shows so they, you can go in more detail about some of the things. I just think what it, I told you I could talk all day to you and now I have to 
say we have to bring it to a close, but boy. Sure. No, uh, we can do it again. Yeah. Okay, you know what we should do? We, maybe we can bring a panel together. We can bring a two or three different people who work in different international schools. Because I do think that I would love to encourage people to consider, you know, an opportunity when, you know, uh, we, and, and oftentimes we get brand new teachers, maybe they've taught a couple of years in the, U, in the U.S. and they are interested in traveling and, you know, while they're still single, maybe on the younger. And then we also have teachers that have retired from public school systems in Canada and the United States. and you know, they're living on a, they have their, they have their pensions. And at the same time, they, they want to travel and they come to a place like Mexico and, uh, and live very well. Um, and, you know, and, and have the, and, cause they're not done. They're not ready to completely retire. Right. And I think that that's uh, a great opportunity for people. And, and, and along the way, obviously, you know, it's not just those, what I call bookends, but it's also, you know, pe- there are people at any different stages of their career where they say, you know what, I think I want to do this. And Mexico is a nice place. I mean, we don't, you know, the, the salaries aren't as good as other parts of the world, obviously, mm-hmm. but the proximity of the U.S. and it's a good first stop, I think, for people. And then some people say, you know, they had a great experience. And they just want to go back to the U.S. for family reasons or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then other people get, you know, they get they get they get uh, really excited about living and working in, around the world. And being a part of Nordanglia now, we have teachers who can, you know, once they're in one of the Nordanglia schools, they we have internal job boards, obviously, so they can apply for positions all over the world in India and China. You know, we're in thirty three um, different countries, I think, at this point. Oh, I and, and I'm more. at thirty two, so now there's another one. Okay, I think we added. I think they added the, the Dominican Republic a couple of months ago. I think that was you know maybe they haven't updated the website. <laughs> so. <laughs> How about this? We um, put some of this information so if people are interested, they'll yeah. know where to go and and maybe apply. Who knows? Yeah, oh, why not? Oh, John, this has just been wonderful. I've learned so much about you, and I I really appreciate this time and on my virtual porch. <laughs> yeah, on the virtual porch, I love it. I yeah. love it. I would, yeah, it was really also really nice to to be able to talk with you and um, and and explain to people a little bit about you know what I've done and the decisions you could you know that I've made along the course of my career. And I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. No. Not, not by a long shot. You have a lot <laughs> still to do, and. And uh, we definitely, that idea of the panel sounds really good. I'm going to talk to you more about that. Yeah, but, let's think uh, about it. Thank you so much. I just You're very welcome. really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with John Miller. I've known John for some time on Twitter. And it was so great to learn about John's journey to so many countries, his studies on international relations, and now as headmaster of Eaton School in Mexico. So make sure you check out the blog post that goes with this podcast, and that is on barbabray.net. You can access resources and links John mentioned. It would be awesome if you subscribed to my podcast. I'd be really grateful if you wrote a review. So thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story and please stay safe and be well.